Welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the importance of, inspiration behind, and history of collecting and sharing regional tales. Today, I have with me the amazing Mark Matsky. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I have a story to tell you that you've probably never heard before. <laughs> never. <laughs> never. And it is I that... I will never guess. <laughs> it is that <clears throat> before being involved with STM, watching the early productions and stuff, um, I would tell Seth often that I couldn't wait to meet you. And uh, here we are meeting for the first time. Here we are. Yes. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Yeah. So glad you're willing to uh, to come here Prepare today. Prepare to be immediately disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So <clears throat> for those people who are watching this channel and somehow are unfamiliar with you, can you explain to them your connection to the cryptid community? Um, yes, I think I can. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, it goes all the way back to when I first started reading chapter books mm -hmm. and uh, Bigfoot publishing was really starting to get rolling at that point. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, I was picking up books, uh, probably the most important one out of all of them initially was on the track of Bigfoot by Marion T. Place. Mm -hmm. And in that book, I learned, you know, I, going back through it, it's amazing how comprehensive she was because she's talking about Patterson-Gimlin film. Mm -hmm. She's name dropping Bluff Creek and Northern California and Jerry Crew, just all the classic mm -hmm. stories. And so that got me going into Bigfoot Fordian literature. Mysterious America by Lauren Coleman was an absolute milestone for me. Yeah. So that then uh, when I was an adult and a dad, and I wanted my son to have some of these similar experiences. You know, we lived at the time in close proximity to Salt Fork State Park, mm -hmm. where there were ongoing Bigfoot conferences happening, some years, multiple conferences. Right. So we started going to them, just dipping our toe in what they had to offer, like on a one-day basis. Mm -hmm. And then we signed up for a VIP experience, which meant a restaurant meal, and one thing led to another we ended up sitting with Seth Breedlove and his dad, Ronnie. Wow. Never met them before. Sitting in a booth with two strangers and yeah. very quickly becoming uh, aware that we had a lot in common. Yeah. Uh, most especially an interest in the Bigfoot subject. And that led into uh, pretty rapidly as Seth got started recording Sass What, mm -hmm. a podcast about Bigfoot. He invited <laughs> me to come on and talk about the conference experience in particular, which I did, and he never asked me to not come on again. <laughs> so it just became sort of a weekly thing. Yeah. And, you know, we ended up recording about 100 episodes, and then my son Andy joined me for more episodes after that. And it was, of course, you know, those who have listened through the, the Sasswood uh, catalog know that very naturally what started happening is we began discussing the production of Minerva Monster, Mm -hmm. And then also Beast of Whitehall. That resulted finally in an invitation for Andy and I to go on the um, shoot down in Falk mm -hmm. for Boggy Creek Monster. And ever since then, we had even more opportunities to work on the film end of things with writing of narration, narrating some projects, mm -hmm. uh, being involved in the Kickstarter. I mean, you name it, we've one or both of us has done a little bit of it yeah. in some way, shape or form. So, and that brings us to today, you know, where we're recording Monsteropolis and uh, you have become a part of that, oh, yeah. which has been a lot of fun. And it's just opened so many doors for me personally, mm -hmm. taken me to places I never thought I would see mm -hmm. with my own eyes and contribute to the field in very modest ways, but ways that I hope will still be there after I'm gone. So it's it's pretty amazing to yeah. just consider that, you know, and to to know some of these people whose books I read as a kid <laughs> right. on a first name basis and yeah. know that I could email them and they'll email me back. <laughs> right. It's fant it's you know, 
exceeds all my expectations, really. That's awesome. Yeah. As far as being a father and bringing your son into this, how old was Andy whenever this all started as far as bringing well, him to conferences? Bringing him to conferences, he was probably, uh, <laughs> I'd say six or seven years old. Oh. Probably in that neighborhood. Do you tolerate it well? I'm thinking of oh, yeah. my six-year-old, and I don't know how long she would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he loved it. Yeah, I mean, we were really, we were really fortunate in that the uh, guest list for the year that we went was particularly good, mm-hmm. and especially the one that sticks in my mind is Ron Moorhead, mm-hmm. and he had a number of the recordings that he played mm-hmm. as part of his presentation, and I just remember, you know, sitting there and like sneaking looks at Andy to see how he was taking it. And he was just like locked in. He was really into it. And it just worked out really well. And, um, you know, certainly it was even before that, that we were watching shows. I mean, one Mm -hmm. show in particular that I think was instrumental in getting his interest going was Monster Quest. Mm -hmm. He's just the right age for that because of the way that they approach the subject and, uh, you know, take it, pretty seriously but it wasn't that show in particular it never struck me that it was sensational or trying you know trying to scare the viewer Mm -hmm. as much it was trying to inform the viewer right and I think Andy responded to that I'm sure there were days where he binge watched Monster (laughs) Quest and that was always going on and and you know my personal library is um somewhat well-developed, mm-hmm. I, I guess you could say. Yeah. And so he's always had access to that as well. And, you know, I wanted him to to kind of catch that same um, excitement, I guess. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't going to be about cryptids or the unexplained, that was fine. But, yeah. but knowing that if whatever you get interested in, here's how you um, get more information. Right. Here's how to pursue something. Mm-hmm. That's really what I wanted him to know. Yeah. And I think that he he learned his lessons pretty well <laughs> as far as that goes. You're right about Monster Quest because the other day yeah. I was going through YouTube and just clicked on something. I wasn't even aware of what I clicked on and he came into the room. He's like, that's Monster Quest. Yeah. Yeah, it was the narration and boom, he yeah. was in there. Um, so you're talking about this personal library I'm curious. Yeah. What does this library look like? How many volumes are in? How many volumes? That's an excellent question. I think um, someday I have always intended to catalog what I have Mm -hmm. because I I just don't know the answer (laughs) to that question. But it's taken on a life of its own. I mean, it's how many? um, Well, yeah. At least four big. Yeah, at least. I mean, that's not even counting the collectible ones, the really collectible. collectible. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, at a, at a certain nice. point, I started to... <laughs> if, here's what I'll say. The one book in particular that got me on the collectible hunt was Lauren Coleman's Mysterious America, because mm-hmm. that's gone through at least four different iterations. Mm-hmm. And the one that I wanted the most was the original, you know, the first printing, which had a real distinctive cover. Like it's a white background, a pen and ink drawing of Mm -hmm. all of these, everything from like a a mandrill looking (laughs) Bigfoot, North American ape to a creepy clown. And it's all on one (laughs) beautiful illustration. And I, I searched for that for a long time before getting a copy that I could live with the price, <laughs> the asking price. Right. But I've lucked into other, um, mm-hmm. really beautiful collectible editions like of, uh, uh, Sasquatch, the apes among us, mm-hmm. uh, by John green first edition signed. I found that at a half price books, nice. believe it or not. And, um, uh, one of the, the like the, I don't know that it's a, it's probably not a first edition, but it's the early wave of Ivan Sanderson's um, Abominable Snowman. Oh, wow. With the uh, dust cover that has, you know, as you put it on the shelf, there's like a Bigfoot skull on the nice. spine. It's just a thing of That's beauty. Cool. So, you know, I, I it's expanded from there in 
from just having the copies that meant a lot to me when I was a kid to now just, you know, it's not something I necessarily pursue, but I've Mm -hmm. happened into it on a number of occasions and it's always exciting. And then, you know, we've over time gotten to know people like Stan Gordon. Right. And meeting him originally at Monster Bash, which is a, you know, a classic horror movie convention, Mm -hmm. but because he lives locally to where that's held, He's often presented his UFO and Bigfoot stuff at this this uh, monster movie convention, which is an awesome crossover. Yeah. And so we've gotten his books and, you know, signed them to us at various times. And yeah. we have multiple copies with, that he's signed. It's just, it's taken on a life of its own. But for me, I mean, that's really where the subject lives mm-hmm. in my mind and in my enjoyment of it is in the reading of the books mm-hmm. about it um, and seeing how over time their availability the book's availability sort of ebbs and flows mm-hmm. and then a new publisher will come out with sort of an expanded edition of a classic and yeah to me that stuff is always the the uh, variations are always super interesting mm-hmm. to take note of so as a collector what are your thoughts on uh, like ebooks Here's what I'll say about ebooks. Um, I love them because yeah. there are some volumes that I probably would never have read were it not for the ebook right. and the price break that you get with that. Yeah. And it one, is substantial. Yeah. One book in particular that I'm thinking of is David Coleman's Bigfoot filmography. Mm-hmm. Gigantic book, reasonably priced for what it is, but I just when that came out, I didn't feel like shelling out whatever the retail price was, but the Kindle edition was somewhere between 80 and 90% off Mm -hmm. of the retail price. And that's easy for me. Right. So I, that's, that's how I, my thoughts on it is that economically for somebody who is just the thing you care about most is, (laughs) am I going to read this or not? Right. That's enabled me to do it. I mean, it's no replacement for a, a, you know, first edition or, or just the variation that exists in one version to another. But Mm -hmm. the, you know, the Kindle was a game changer for me and, and being able to, um, also from a portability standpoint, you know, like when you're recording a podcast, (laughs) it's not as easy to bring your stack of books as it is get, if you have that on a Kindle, Mm-hmm. You can just flip back and forth between the volumes. That's that's pretty helpful too. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, for researching, I want to know how because this is one of the biggest reasons that I had wanted to meet you was uh-huh. was clearly you've done a lot of research and a lot of reading. What does research look like for Mark Matsky? Oh my goodness, it's probably pretty. <laughs> well, you've seen the crazy board in the other office. It's probably <laughs> a lot like that. <laughs> If you're going to diagram it. Um, well, it, it begins for me with the books, mm-hmm. right? So if, um, if we're looking into, let's say, sightings of white-haired Bigfoot, yep. then the first thing I'll do is take a couple books off the shelf that I know are going to give me something yeah, or at least point me in a direction in their the bibliography. Mm -hmm. But that's where I start is with the books that I know. And there's a handful of books that I'm pretty well versed in how they're laid out at Mm -hmm. the very least. And I'll turn to and Sasquatch Apes Among Us is one, a Bigfoot case book by uh, Janet and Colin Board is another, Mysterious America, which keeps coming up. (sighs) And the work of Stan Gordon, uh, most especially uh, Silent Invasion. But those, then that sort of gets me started. If I, if it's something that I'm gonna have to talk about as far as research goes, then I have to write things down. Right. And that's typically will take (laughs) any blank sheet of paper will do. (laughs) Yeah. But I prefer like, uh, index cards and like the giant index cards or a notebook like the one that you have right there. Mm Mm-hmm to organize it because it just seems like it locks in if I write it down. Right. And if I don't, it doesn't. Right. So that is a a direction that I'll go in. Um, I do use the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, I will Google stuff and try to find 
try to move past the first couple of pages of right. results yeah. to get into the more obscure stuff and um, and really try to vet that as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And we'll only use the stuff if it's cited with names that I know or trust mm-hmm. already. Yeah. Like the the very, you know, very up-to-date example of that was, I mentioned this on the Monstropolis that we just recorded, but it was the work of Ron Schaffner, who is based in Ohio, mm-hmm. whose work still exists in various forms online. And uh, there's one researcher who's archived not all of his Creature Chronicles newsletter, but a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And it's just fun to go back and look at those. Yeah. And it's it's it really is just the scanned in, um, you know, one fold newsletter that yeah. was mailed out for a time. And I just love coming across stuff like that because it just evokes a certain time period. Mm-hmm. And you just imagine this great researcher and his team, and they're literally clipping things out of newspapers and magazines, putting them in this newsletter, yeah. and then typing what they want to put in as far as their reports are concerned. Right. I love stuff like that. I mean, that to me, there's a lowercase r, you know, romance to yeah. that because it just it takes you back to a time when if you were going to do that, you had to develop a a mailing list of people who wanted yeah. to get your newsletter. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? And relatively speaking, it wasn't that long ago Yeah, when that was going on. In some cases, those newsletters are still circulating, mm-hmm. even though we have an internet and, yeah. and all of this modern instant communication. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the, the flow of it, I guess, would be the books come first, internet research, um, on rare occasions, and this is more happenstance, I suppose, we'll end up in libraries where there's microfilm, microfiche. Yeah. Yeah. I don't recall times where we've specifically gone to go and, and get those, but we've when we've had opportunity to do that, it's always been interesting. Newspapers.com has changed the game as far oh, yeah. as that goes, you mm-hmm. know, where you can now just enter search <laughs> right or put in wild man and everything comes up mm-hmm. or whatever but um that that's pretty much it and uh i guess part of the other side to that is you know no body of research as you're well aware is static mm-hmm. so you have to keep your finger on the pulse of what's coming out lately and right. no one person can do that but so I've tried to identify what are, you know, a few important works each year mm-hmm. that I should probably know at least the direction they're going in and keeping up to date with those. So it's the ongoing process of the research is just knowing now what's going on. Right. You know, because as soon as you've got a book written and stuff, <laughs> there's something coming behind that. Absolutely. I think that's in all disciplines, too. Mm hmm. When you've been researching, can you think of a time that you came across something just by coincidence that wasn't necessarily related to, or maybe it was related to something that you were researching at the time, but it just was a moment of, whoa, that's, that's amazing. Just a, an outstanding story of some sort. Yeah. I, I, the, the one that jumps immediately to mind is uh, the work of Linda Godfrey. Mm-hmm. You know, the, all of that is set the majority of the cases she initially was researching and reporting on were in southeastern Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to walk into a gift shop in uh, in, uh, Door County, Wisconsin, Sturgeon Bay. So that's further up the coastline. Mm -hmm. And in this gift shop, there's this book called something uh, the hunt for the american werewolf oh by linda godfrey and i was yeah what in the world <laughs> is this about so of course i bought it and started reading it and just was absolutely floored that in elkhorn wisconsin there was this ongoing wave of of dogman reports mm-hmm. being being fielded happening during the 90s and I, you know, th- I was finding out about this towards the end of the '90s, into the early 2000s, maybe even later than that, maybe like 2002, three, four. And what was stunning to me is that at the time that these sightings were happening, 
my parents lived maybe an hour and a half mm -hmm. from where all these things were happening. Wow. And so it was just mind boggling. <laughs> yeah. Because I was sort of tracing my steps back at the time I was doing my undergraduate in Chicago and coming home occasionally to Northern Illinois where they were living, which wasn't that far from the border. Mm -hmm. And Elkhorn's not far from the border with Illinois at all. And just to know that all of that had been transpiring basically under my nose without really knowing about it right. until just, you know, probably five, 10 years after that, uh, is astounding to me. And now to have researched that more fully and seen like what happens in Milwaukee and Madison mm -hmm. and, um, even researching the locations that we went to for the Bray Road shoot, yeah. having read stories about the uh, place where, you know, the, and the 1930s sighting took place mm. where the creature was digging into the, it's the Shackleton sighting okay. and the Gadara utterance and then going there. Yeah. It, it's stuff like that. That's just absolutely mind boggling. Like we're here we're where it happened, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'd say the the Bray Road stuff was a was a huge aha moment and like mm -hmm. a total surprise. Yeah. That makes me wonder about other like local shops whenever you're out just whether it's on a shoot or just traveling in general, do you look at little shops to see if there's any local authors? I mean, we know Linda Godfrey, but yeah. I mean just smaller authors that mm -hmm. aren't as widely as published. Yeah, I we had that uh that happened just this summer. Uh, we're in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and I'm always looking. You know, yeah. if, if you like, if you're <laughs> into this, you're always looking. Yeah. And I was just checking to see they had a local authors section of this. Uh, is a larger gift shop, but they had a book section that was pretty well developed and a lot of local history with Fort Ligonier there, and um, histories of the fort and the Native American culture and things like that. Mm -hmm. But then there was a little Stan Gordon section. And I was just like, <laughs> yes, I, I think I took a picture of it and sent it, you know, to the people who I thought would get a kick out of that. But yeah, but that's definitely always within the larger publishing world. Now, I think it's become relatively commonplace to find self-published local authors right. almost everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always tuned into that and. You know, my family does a lot of used bookstore and thrift store shopping and particular the books section. And you just never know mm -hmm. what you're going to turn up in a situation like that. And yeah. we've found some some really high quality stuff that someone cast off right. for whatever reason. And yeah, I think that's that's one thing to definitely keep your eye on. And just about anywhere you go where there's a tourist sensibility mm -hmm. you're going to find some writing that has to do with local legends now yeah it's kind of neat to see how that's developed and how technology has made that more possible where people don't feel like i have to get a publishing deal <laughs> right you know yeah and so i think that's that's put a lot more stories in circulation mm -hmm. what is one of the uh what's one of the legends from that area fort fort langelier Ligonier? Ligonier. Langelier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, a lot of, interestingly, a lot of the lore and the stories have to do with soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, there's, even at Fort Ligonier itself, there's a small section dedicated to legends and stories that have arisen over time, including stuff like uh, soldiers appearing in photographs where they're sort okay. of out of time mm -hmm. and they're in their full regalia. Yeah. And like somebody was just taking a tour, snapped a photo <laughs> and went home and saw, right. There's this soldier figure in my photo. Does mm -hmm. anybody, and then they bring it back and they sort of puzzle over it. Yeah. There's a lot of stories like that in that area and books in the, the gift shop at Fort Ligonier that are ghost stories of the fort. Right. And I guess you get that, almost everywhere where there've been not just soldiers stationed, but there've been battles, right? There've been people killed in combat. 
mm-hmm. and lives taken too soon. Uh, there's bodies of stories that build up around that. I think that's probably the big one in that particular area, although you're not, I mean, you're essentially um, Laurel Ridge and Chestnut Ridge. Mm-hmm. So you're not far away from all sorts of wild weirdness right. when you're down there in southwestern PA. Yeah. When you were little, what was the first thing that sparked an interest in cryptids? In cryptids. You know what? I think it's so stupid. <laughs> it was uh, a Saturday morning television show called Bigfoot and Wild Boy. Okay. Have you heard of this? I've heard you talk about it. Yes. <laughs> that's probably it. I mean, that's probably the one thing over everything else Yeah. is watching that show and just being like, that's the coolest thing mm-hmm. in the world would be to like <laughs> go around the Pacific Northwest with Bigfoot as your pal <laughs> and you'd stop minor crimes from happening. I mean, yeah. that, that, yeah. that was it. And I guess along the way then, you know, what that very quickly turned into was it's a cool story. And I love Star Wars and there's a Wookiee in that. Yeah. Is there anything to this? Yeah. You know, and I... <laughs> Um, I was somewhat of an experiment, I think, as far as early reading goes. Okay. So it, I, it, there's like no crossover time between watching Bigfoot and Wild Boy and then going to my library and that story time and stuff and like mm-hmm. being very interested in finding out is there any, are there any books on this subject? And that's where Marion T. Place comes into focus that's where like readers digests unexplained compendiums comes in yeah and there's that there were the early young reader books Mm -hmm. and then there was in search of uh, with leonard nimoy and you know i wasn't into that show all the time because sometimes they were talking about either just weird creepy stuff that kind of scared me yeah actually or stuff i didn't care about at all Mm mm-hmm but then they had the very famous Bigfoot episodes and I was all in yeah. for those. And, you know, those were sort of a blend of, uh, you know, very early, almost STM-ish. You're on, you're actually there at Bluff Creek or, or in Willow Creek, California. Mm-hmm. And then mixed in with reenactments yeah. and like um, Ape Canyon, the Ape Canyon incident is one that, sticks in a lot of people's minds mm-hmm. from watching those uh, early in search of. So I think that's, those are, those three things together are what got me started with a real interest in it. And then after uh, we moved to like rural central Michigan, mm-hmm. we had a very, we had a small but mighty library in the town that I grew up. And that was my first exposure to mysterious America. They had the, some, nice. Some librarian there in Hemlock, Michigan thought, I'm going to order Mysterious America by Lauren Coleman. And that then, I guess, set the paradigm for everything else that followed. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, in in the first edition of Mysterious America and all the rest too, but I just recall very clearly Lauren's talking about place names and how those carry over into histories of reports and accounts coming out of places like that. Mm. And, you know, he wasn't, su- he wasn't suggesting anything about like a chicken and egg, which comes first. He was just noting that right. in places with certain names, a lot of these reports seem to start uh, to amass. Right. And then also, of course, Bigfoot, but also uh, UFOs and and out-of-place animals, panthers, kangaroos. Um, I, I just, I see very clearly in my, my memory, there's a picture of a, a quote-unquote phantom kangaroo that yes. was taken in Illinois. <laughs> and, you know, you talk about things that surprise you connections that you didn't realize were there i mean he talks about in mysterious america that he's from decatur illinois Mm -hmm. and how his early research was done in southern illinois and that's where i was born i was born in decatur yeah so when the time finally came when i met lauren and we communicated that's something that we've 
we're able to say we have in common. And there's a picture that we took at the the museum where it was Andy and Lauren and me. Mm-hmm. And Lauren titled that the Decatur bookends because Aww. it was the two of us with yeah. Andy in the middle. And, you know, you can't, I, there's no way you can't plan stuff like that. Right. It can only happen. But to, I'm sure that when I first read that he was from Decatur, Illinois, I probably fell off the bed sure. or wherever I was reading it as a kid. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. That's Here's somebody awesome. who knows where I'm from. Yeah. And, and the different places that you've lived, um, are there any stories like local stories that piqued your interest or that you were aware of even maybe while you were there in that place? Yeah, it seems like it's this really wacky situation <laughs> where I only find out about stuff after I've left. <laughs> yeah. Cause like the, uh, that's certainly the case from when we lived in Northern Illinois right. and we're a stone's throw from Elkhorn. Yeah. Um, it turns out though, I think where we live now, uh, which is Painesville, Ohio, mm-hmm. there's a, a smattering of historical Bigfoot reports from that general area. Uh, there's a, a well-known metro park not far from our house that is a beautiful waterfall. And there's a historic Bigfoot report that was taken from that waterfall, that park. Wow. Um, Geneva, Ohio is a couple communities to our east and there are bigfoot stories that come out of there uh to our southeast um in ashtabula county there is a illustrious history uh sort of through the prism of one researcher that it seems like at first a somewhat unlikely place for bigfoot stories to take hold Mm -hmm. of things but having said that it is along a river valley it's near the beginning of where the grand river starts and then continues to wind its way up to the to the lake but i i think that's that's been the biggest local stuff is um, where we live now with the huge exception of course of salt fork state park Uh, When we lived down in Southeast Ohio, we were 45 minutes from door to door from our house to the uh, lodge Mm. at Salt Fork. So that's a place where we were able to kind of get into things in in probably the most immediate way. Yeah. Because there was, you know, we lived there during the time when Finding Bigfoot was doing episodes based in Salt Fork. Right. And that's a place that we just had access to and mm-hmm. could go if we felt like it, you know, on a yeah. weekend. So uh, that's probably it's between the two places where we've lived most recently. So did you go bigfooting while you were there? Did you take ex- like daily tri- or day trips to go? Yeah. Check oh out? yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Got our, our uh, little backpacks ready. Yeah. And, uh, Went out and hiked <laughs> some of the the famous locations in Salt Fork. I mean, we that's the amazing thing. And that sort of, this was just ahead of the curve of being involved in small town monsters shoots. Mm-hmm. So that was our first taste of like reading an account, figuring out where that was, and then going there. Right. And That was so cool because one story that was making the rounds at that time was of uh, a family and like these little kids having a sighting at a a place where you hike up. It's like goes straight up the hill and there's a picnic table at the top and Knob is in the name. I forget the, the full name of that picnic area, but you would, you hiked way up to the top of this, the knob Mm-hmm. And it was there's a slight sort of overlook, but that's that is the place where these kids said they saw a Bigfoot like peek out the classic peek out from behind the tree yeah. sighting, and it was between them and their parents, and they freaked out, and they yeah, they called. I think they got in contact because they had heard of Doug Waller's group, mm-hmm. and they contacted him, and he investigated. He knew right where that was, and so we we had that same sort of sense of here's where it 
you know, allegedly happened. And that's, that's also the case with Hozak's cave down there. And uh, just some of the other sighting reports, it's not hard to figure out at Salt Fork right. where those those sightings have happened, especially when they name uh, the trail mm-hmm. or the physical location where it happened. When you've been on different shoots with Seth and the crew, yeah, which, well, first of all, of all the locations, which one has been your favorite to go to and visit? I think... Oh boy. <laughs> I I mean just the first thing that comes to mind and I'm sure even if I sat and thought about it a long time it'd be the same answer it's the Olympic Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And that's a combination of things one is just the beauty of the area mm-hmm. and uh the, the all the things that make the OP unique. I just can't get enough of those. Yeah. And would go back in a heartbeat. And it's also then I think our our uh, very fortunate connection to the Olympic project, and the the nature of the research that they do, and the fact that they were willing to open that up to us, mm-hmm. and to let us get a, a small taste of the things that they've learned, and to yeah. be there with them. Um, that for me was a real culmination, and to have been there more than once is mm-hmm. fairly unusual. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I know Seth has gone to a lot of these places multiple times for yeah. various reasons, but you know, Olympic Peninsula in particular was a place where we, our, our time there was cut short. So there's this feeling of unfinished business. Like there's a lot more that we wanted to see and do, particularly the, the coastline mm-hmm. and seeing the Pacific ocean. And so that, that all coincided with uh, just a great trip and unbelievable weather. Yeah. And, you know, Andy was with me for that trip. Mm-hmm. He turned 18 while we were out there. Mm-hmm. Is I got to be on a kayak on Lake Crescent. <laughs> I mean, so many things just worked out perfectly yeah. for that trip. It was, um, you know, and it's a place without exaggeration, I think about multiple times every day. Yeah. Certain places just get in your blood and the Olympic Peninsula is is that for me, for yeah. sure. So you'd go back is what you're saying. I would go back. <laughs> I've looked at real estate in <laughs> various parts of the peninsula. Um, that's a long, long way off, but right. it's fun to dream about it. And it's a place that I, I really like because it's not, there's nowhere on the Olympic Peninsula that feels like you're necessarily in the 21st century, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's, there's towns, you know, Port Angeles is probably the biggest, but to get from one place to another, it's, there's long stretches. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the park is a lot of that peninsula. Mm-hmm. It just is. And it's, uh, just, I don't know. There's a, a very specific beauty about that place. I just love it. Yeah. In the immediate area of where Ohio, West mm-hmm. Virginia, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. what is one of your favorite places to go visit cryptid wise or folklore wise to check out in our immediate, like within driving distance? Within driving distance? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm uh, Chestnut Ridge for me yeah. is a real, real special place. Mm hmm. And, um, I, that's in part because of the relationship that we've struck up with Stan, mm-hmm. you know, every time I've ever talked to him or messaged him, you know, he's like, just call sometime. Yeah. It, you know, it's not even like talk to talk <laughs> about a case. It's just, you know, check in and let me know how you're doing. But I mean, beyond that, I think the, the, all the people that I know and have met, who have some hand in researching in Southwest Pennsylvania are just great people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Altman is one, uh, Sean Forker, mm-hmm. just these really, you know, people that you would want to be friends with independent of right. Bigfoot and, and strange things. But having said all of that, it's the, the natural, again, the natural beauty of the Chestnut Ridge area and Laurel Ridge, the highlands, um, 
Ohio Pile and the, the state park there, the Ohio Ganey River. And I guess then the thing that I really love about the Chestnut Ridge is the, uh, the sheer strangeness yeah. of the cases. Yeah. That appeals to me because, you know, you get into the subject and Bigfoot is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible incredible uh, discipline, if you will. The body of research is huge anymore. Mm-hmm. But after a while, you just want to see something really weird. <laughs> yeah. And Chestnut Ridge has that in spades. I mean, everything yeah. from UFOs to stuff that there's not even a category for. Like what? Um, there's one story in particular where somebody saw in a tree, like they're driving, I believe they were driving. And up in a tree, they see what at first appears to be like a vortex of energy okay. or a glowing pipeline that seems to shrink and grow. Mm-hmm. And then inside of that pipeline appears like a, a small figure, like four to five feet tall, humanoid, more like a gray alien than anything, but not even that distinctive features. Right. And it looks like it's just sort of lounging in this tree limb, kind of hanging out. Oh. And uh, <laughs> then they watch, They, yeah, I guess they stop the car, they observe this for a while, and then the thing sort of jumped into the, the energy tube, mm-hmm. and it all just sort of winked out and was gone. Wow. Yeah. I've never heard of such a thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I mean, that appears in the annals of Stan Gordon's research. In mm-hmm. in recent years, he's taken more than one report about um, what probably just a couple decade or two ago would have been just thrown in with Bigfoot reports. But mm-hmm. it's something large, extremely thin. Mm. In some cases, it doesn't have a, even have a discernible head. Oh, it's almost like this large stick figure that can has sort of a shadowy appearance. And we're talking like big, like eight, nine feet tall. Yeah. And when it decides to move, it moves with extreme speed. Yeah, that mm. sort of thing gets seen yeah. on the ridge. Um, and then just all sorts of out-of-place animals. I mean, there's one very, very recent UFO report where a um, person had a, a very close-up l- look at this UFO that was moving silently. They were able to very, in great detail, describe how the lights were situated on this object that was just floating along. I think it was silent. Mm-hmm. Shining a light down into various portions of the forest. And in this case, then, one of the areas that the object passed over and shone the light down into it was almost like a, a wave of animals came out of that woods. Oh. Yeah, you know, it's like what it reminded me of when I was reading it is like those scenes like in uh, the Jurassic Park movies where <laughs> there's like an eruption or something and all the animals are running right. yeah. in front of the explosion. <laughs> Time to flee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like that in this case where it was a lot of natural seeming animals coming out. And then the person was like absolutely dumbstruck because what they saw come out of the woods was a wolverine. And wolverines really are not supposed to be in southwestern Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. So it was not only did you do you have the layer of a UFO being seen (laughs) for a long duration of time and that it's seemingly interacting with the environment causing an animal stampede <laughs> but one of the animals that comes out isn't even supposed to be there i right. mean the, the um you know the state would probably tell you those don't we don't have those here sure so you know it, that's that's chestnut ridge yeah par excellence yeah it's just you put more than one weird thing together and you just go with it i'm pretty sure it was in one of stan's books where uh, there were there was cattle mutilation in mm-hmm. the area, which does not fit at all, like you were saying, no, with this area that's mm-hmm. that's out west on the big ranches. Correct. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. You have cattle mutilation. You know what? Interestingly, when we were out on the shoot for invasion on Chestnut Ridge, mm-hmm. we were out at a, a family farm. They, were, they had horses at the time. And the owner of the property, very matter-of-factly, took us aside and talked to us about um, big black cats, uh, black mountain lions that the the people who live there just sort of accept as this is par for the course. And so you better keep an eye on your livestock. And they, they, that's how they did their daily operations was toward with an eye towards making sure their livestock were uh, well taken care of. Mm -hmm. And it's again, you know, this is, (laughs) that's not necessarily something you associate with, you know, areas not far from Pittsburgh, but Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of stuff like that in that area. One thing that I haven't had a chance to ask you yet, but I just now remembered, I ask a lot of people that I've talked to on here. When you were younger, was there a family member that was a storyteller? Whether it's family tales or local tales. Yeah, I think there was the who I think of right away was my um, my paternal grandmother mm-hmm. who just passed away last year mm-hmm. at the age of 101. Whoa, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And she that's was wonderful. just really great with a story. Yeah. And my my grandma and grandpa, um, they love to travel. And I remember a conversion van that they had, just a silver van. And I loved to, when they would come and visit, we'd get to drive around in that van. But they made it, I want to say, to all the states in the lower 48 but one. I think there's one they didn't hit. Mm. But in all their travels then, they'd come back and they would have stories to share. And we didn't live close by, so my interaction with them was very concentrated mm-hmm. but i would just love to hear her tell stories about like they had one trip in particular where they went to germany and they went and saw there's a passion play there that happens like once every 10 years yeah. the town does it at Oberammergau, and they she would tell stories about that and she was one of seven kids growing up so she'd tell stories about growing mm-hmm. up then Mm-hmm. And I just really, um, and it, it, there's always, she would find the humor in it. She would always find something really fun, some fun remembrance. Yeah. So I took a lot from that. Can I just say that both you and Jesus are really good storytellers? Yeah, right. Yeah. My mom and dad are. It's always like stories are always. Shout out to mom yeah. and dad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who I'm sure are watching right now. Hi. <laughs> yeah, they are. I, you're right, Andy. They do. Um, and uh, yeah, they. That's true. Sure, bringing stories in, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and my my grandfather, my. Uh, my grandpa Matsky was a reporter too mm-hmm. for a local paper. So he was literally writing stories. Right. Um, usually about sports yeah. and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I also remember my maternal grandmother. Uh, she would tell stories also a lot, especially in her latter years, having to do with growing up on the family farm. Mm-hmm. And I really loved hearing about that because there were draft horses yeah. and all just, you know, a life that I never lived. Mm-hmm. That wasn't my experience. So to be able to hear her talk about what it was like growing up on a, a farm was was really fascinating to me. Have you collected any of those stories? You know, I really haven't. I really haven't. I think the um, probably there exists in boxes in the attic mm-hmm. stories that I collected when I was a kid. Yeah. Cause there were, and I can think of a number of occasions where that was kind of an assignment. Right. And I, I bet you anything those still exist. Yeah. They're still preserved. So 
those, those may exist in some format there. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I, I will say as related to that is that I've known, I've had the pleasure of knowing well a couple World War II veterans mm. uh, who are both now deceased. Mm -hmm. But I was able to sit down with both of these men and uh, record a conversation with them about their experiences. Awesome. Uh, one was a fighter pilot in World War II. Yeah. And had amazing stories to tell. There's one time where his plane got really, I mean, extensively damaged. Mm -hmm. And there's no good, solid reason, physically speaking, why he was able to make it back to the aircraft carrier. Right. Obviously he did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that we've got that, uh, that exists as a podcast episode, actually, in both cases. Uh, other gentlemen wonderful man. He was one of the first African-American Marines mm -hmm. and uh, had great stories to, to tell. He was a real pioneer in, in his life. So yeah. I was able to get their stories locked in. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and sometimes I'll go back and just hear their voices. Yeah. You know? It's good to have that. That'll just, it'll never disappear. Mm -hmm. What podcast is that? It's called Voices of Faith, actually. And it still exists. It's still out there. I haven't added to it in a long time. But but Lloyd Barnes was the pilot, mm -hmm. and um, Bill Maiden was the uh, Marine. Mm -hmm. And just amazing men. You know, there's that that generation uh, seen and done things that we mm -hmm. just haven't. Yeah, exactly. Well, I always ask people to tell me a story whenever we're finishing this out. So. Um, let me set up a scenario, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so Seth comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to start a new film. And it's going to be whatever you want, Mark. Oh, my. Whatever you want. <laughs> um, Whoa. As far as, you know, the cryptid, high strangeness, anything mm -hmm. like that. Tell me, pitch me a story that you're aware of that would make an excellent movie. <laughs> Wow. Um, let's see. Well, there, geez. <laughs> In a way, I'll get this out of the way and then yeah. give you my real answer. <laughs> okay. In a way, I've done that. Yes. I've actually done that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Jason Udis and I wrote a story about Ape Canyon. Yeah. That exists as a script. Ooh. And we took as a, you know, as the central incident in the film, mm -hmm. the Ape Canyon incident, yeah. which is a Bigfoot, a group Bigfoot attack on gold prospectors. Mm -hmm. But we, we told a, a, and originally that may have, I was thinking of that in certain terms as essentially a biopic of yeah. Fred Beck, who was the, you know, uh, the principal prospector who's usually named in all of the historical accounts and who worked with his son to actually write a small booklet about the real story of Ape Canyon. Mm -hmm. And I thought a, a biopic of his actual life would be interesting. Yeah. Because, among other things, Fred Beck was pretty heavily into spiritualism. Mm. So he was, mm. by his own reckoning, he was guided to find the mine that they prospected through um, various entities that appeared to him. Interesting. Yeah. And that's something mm. that a lot of Bigfooters don't like to tell you. Ah. They would rather you not get into the spiritualist elements of Beck's story huh. because that might, you know, presumably that might shed bad light on what they want to be, you know, airtight flesh and blood Bigfoot story. Right. That's interesting. It is. But, but then we, you know, we went in the direction of making it like a, a, a adventure slash horror story. Yes. with characters that you know you'd you'd care about and we had a fred beck type person mm -hmm. at the center of the story 
you know, and uh, didn't really, weren't setting out to tell the actual Fred Beck story, but Mm -hmm. fictionalized a lot of the stuff around it, made it fun and interesting and double crosses and triple Mm -hmm. crosses. And it was just a blast to write that. Um, There is also, I guess, along those same lines, a story that appears in Tom Powell's The Locals Mm -hmm. about a little girl. uh, Her name was Dora living in rural Missouri, of all places. And Dora was deaf. She grew up in a a family where she she was the only one with any sort of, you know, different ability like that. Mm -hmm. And she grew up assuming everyone had Bigfoot around them all the time because that was her childhood experience. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and Tom Powell relates the story of interviewing her through her husband many years after these events took place, but mm-hmm. in the nineteen early 1960s when she was a child, she grew up in a house that the family rented, and as a child she slept by a window in which there was no screen. Okay. And throughout her childhood would be wakened in the middle of the night by a large leathery hand touching her chest, and then uh, occasionally she would be scooped right out of her window and taken. And Bigfoot would carry her around. Yeah. They'd travel down, up and down the big ditches mm-hmm. that, that were evidently there. Uh, one time she reports that she and her brother um, had the opportunity to play with a juvenile Bigfoot. Oh, wow. And she didn't like it. <laughs> she didn't like That's it. That's the thing that I love about her story <laughs> is that consistently she says, I... I want you to know I didn't like this. This was not fun right. for me. Yeah. It happened, but it wasn't like, whereas me at five years old was <laughs> like, oh, if that could only happen. <laughs> she was like, no, you don't want that. Right. Because like this juvenile Bigfoot was super rough with her mm. as it played. It's such, it like, it, there's one time where it shook her by the shoulders and it just hurt. Yeah. It wasn't fun. And she could, she, there was a adult Bigfoot like supervising this so that it didn't get too out of hand. Right. And then she would always be returned, mm-hmm. just taken right back to the window and put back in uh, to her room. And then one night in particular, uh, she recalled being taken. And I think because it was the middle of the night, generally she would nod off while she was being transported. You know, like little mm-hmm. kids can fall asleep anywhere. Yeah. And then when she woke up, she was clearly in a cave. She's on the floor of the cave. And I think her brother had also been taken with her in this case. And she, what she observed was an infant Bigfoot that had died. And it Mm -hmm. was being buried in a shallow grave in that cave system. And uh, what happened after the burial was she was brought close to what evidently was a mother Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, she was just held close Aww. by this grieving mother for a little while. Yeah. And again, I mean, as she reports that story, she said, this isn't, I was not comfortable with this at right, all. Right, sure. Didn't like it. She smelled funny. Yeah. But she also felt bad for what she understood had happened Mm -hmm. and after a little while of that um another bigfoot came along and grabbed her up you know like a rag doll and took her home and there was one last time that this happened to her i think she was 14 or 15 so getting pretty old Mm -hmm. that she was brought outside there was a group of bigfoot in the ditch and they sat her down on one of these creatures' laps, and it like grabbed her by the hair, and it really, really hurt. And she got kind of upset about this. Yeah. Whereas in the past, she would try to kind of keep her cool. Mm-hmm. She got mad, mm-hmm. and she hopped off of the lap of the creature and went back into the house herself. And um, I believe after that, she told someone in her family. Because she didn't want to talk about it. Right. 
and her grandfather, I believe it is, put screens yeah. in the windows. And she was never taken after that. Wow. So then fast forward to uh, she's a young woman. She's newly married. She goes to a movie with her new husband. They're watching this film called, I don't know what the full title, but it was a Bigfoot movie. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, yeah, Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> and in the course of conversation after the movie, she's talking to her husband about Bigfoot, you know, and yeah. what was Bigfoot like when you grew up? And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah. That never happened to me. And it, it started to occur to her that this was not a normal experience for most people. Right. And just having that realization is so amazing to think about. Like sure. imagine you grew up and you just accepted that this happens like mm-hmm. uh, the family dog almost. Right. Or seeing cows out in the field and there's Bigfoot. Yeah. And Bigfoot's taking me now. Her story is just absolutely incredible. And um, wow. there's another part to that that I forgot, but would almost work as like an epilogue or something. And her, unfortunately, her father, I think, had been in World War II, had a difficult time with what he saw there. And like many veterans, you know, medicated his own pain. Mm-hmm. So um, there was a night where he wrecked the pickup because he had been out drinking and she clearly remembers being like out on the front steps or even out on the front lawn at night. And some large figure comes walking down the road. She thought it was her father and was getting scared that he was going to do something. Yeah. But it was actually Bigfoot carrying her father who had wrecked the truck and was in no position to get himself out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. And it, the Bigfoot's just sort of laid him out on the lawn yeah, and walked off, disappeared. Wow. And so that's the type of interaction that she claimed to have. Yeah. And, you know, over and over again in this interview said, I, this is not something that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I didn't dream it. It, it happened to me. And uh, I don't talk about it too much anymore for obvious reasons, but yeah. felt that that was something she wanted to get off her chest. Wow. I've never heard that story. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Seth? <laughs> 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 I think that's that's a good one. Yeah, that's, I think one of my reasons uh, Tom Powell's book, The Locals, is one of my favorites, mm-hmm. is that it's a book full of stories you've never heard before. Yeah. And as opposed to being like recycling right. the classic cases that if you've ever had an interest in Bigfoot, yeah, you've read like the same dozen things. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all new stuff. And I, and this is back in the nineties, you know, but yeah. he's written other books since then. But that's what I loved about it. The first time through is like, I didn't never yeah. heard this before. I never heard that before. Yeah. I don't have really that amazing. book. So I'm going to have to find it now. Yeah. All right. Yes. Um, done deal highly (laughs) encourage you to do this awesome well where can our listeners find you if they wanted to follow mark matsky oh my well i um probably instagram would be one place to go uh matsky mark is i'm findable there reverend matsky is my twitter handle you have twitter i have a twitter what i do yeah that's cool (laughs) <laughs> I don't do Twitter. <laughs> I, uh, I don't anymore. I don't know why I'm on there, but <laughs> I find a lot of good information, like geeky fan stuff on mm. Twitter. So yeah. I, I've kept Twitter quite yeah. a bit. Um, and also, of course, uh, all throughout uh, Monsteropolis, small town monsters, all that stuff. Uh, I'm findable through that as well. Did you, did you hear that we, when is this coming out, Andy? This one will, will it be Kickstarter time in two yeah. weeks. Okay. Did you hear that we have a Kickstarter coming very soon? I've heard this. You've heard the rumor? Yeah. Isn't yeah. it February 3rd? February 3rd, the Kickstarter is going to be live. And uh, we we both would appreciate you very much checking that out and uh, supporting us. 
So yeah, year in year out, that's been extremely important. Oh yeah. And the level of support has always blown us away. It's mm-hmm. just so cool to, to be there and see people getting excited about upcoming projects and yep. jumping on board. Um, the thing that's great, I think, and I say this, yeah, as somebody who's has an insider perspective, but also who has supported a lot of Kickstarter projects that I just think are interesting. Yeah. The thing with STM is that um, there's always follow through. Right. You know, you always get what is promised at mm-hmm. the beginning of the deal and yeah. Kickstarters can come and go. And mm-hmm. uh, I think people are really consistently pleased with what is part of their uh, backing, mm-hmm. whatever level they decide to back at They're yeah. they're pleased with what they receive. So yeah. it's good. So join us, join us for that. <laughs> yes, please. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so if you uh, have liked this episode, please thumbs up, subscribe to the channel, become a squad member, a channel member, and you can get more behind the scenes stuff. You'll see Mark all over the place. <laughs> um, and uh, leave a comment below. And yeah, you can email me, Heather, at smalltownmonsters.com. And until next time.